This is The Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under a microscope. On this week's episode, Bill and Phil break down the latest developments in the Israel-Hamas war, discuss whether the world is moving towards a bipolar or multipolar distribution of power and why it matters, and close with a spirited debate over whether we're more concerned about Biden's dog biting people or bedbugs running rampant in Paris. Now let's go to the lab. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Politics Lab. My name is Phil Barker, and I'm a professor of political science at Keene State College. And I'm joined by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Bill Muck, who's a professor of political science at North Central College. Hey, Bill, how are you? I'm good, Phil, but it took me three times to get through that stupid <laughs> intro. And then I almost started <laughs> laughing the third time because I just couldn't I couldn't read it right. The the, the whole Biden's dog biting people, uh, that, that phrase really got you for whatever reason. <laughs> Something about the B's and the D's. Uh, yeah, our <laughs> listeners, yeah, I barely got through that one. The first two ones were terrible. <laughs> uh, we need like a, a, an outtake reel at the end, at the end of every episode. <laughs> I was like, can I not read anymore? Uh, yeah, I'm excited about that uh, Biden's dog biting segment. That's going to be good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Only the most important news stories that we cover <laughs> <That's> here. <right. laughs> oh, don't worry about Israel. We, you know, we all talk about the dog biting and fleas in Paris. So. <laughs> so speaking of important news stories, uh, we were talking just before we came on the air. We have some breaking news about uh, about developments in Russia as well. Right. Do you, do you want to talk about what, what we, I, you've got it in front of you? I forgot the exact details. Do you okay. still have it? Yes. So the, the, the story I have it pulled up here. So let me pull it up here somewhere. Uh, a story broke um, this week, I guess. Is that one with a, a week or so ago so. that uh, that um, uh, Putin claimed? So, so back to the you know the the failed uh, uh, uprising coup, whatever you want to call it, in Russia from the from the Wagner the Wagner group that uh, Prigozhin um, uh, was killed in the plane crash. Um, apparently, this week Putin claimed that Prigozhin's plane crashed because the Wagner leadership got drunk and or high, <laughs> one of the two or both, and then set off. Hand grenades during the flight. So, <laughs> so his his story, the story that Vladimir Putin's going with, is this guy who made himself like enemy number one of Vladimir Putin <laughs> dies in a plane crash, and it's just it's coincidental that he was playing with hand grenades on the flight. That you buy that, right, Bill? Oh, this makes perfect sense, right? <laughs> uh, this is what this is what real people want to do. They want to get drunk and play with hand grenades on a on a plane. On a plane. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's one of those. I think you and I commented on that. It's so outrageous. And I think that's the intent, right? Putin yeah. wants to make it clear that he just came up with the most bizarre thing in the world. Like, oh, they were they were juggling grenades while drunk on a plane, right? You know, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, the brazenness is is unreal. But yeah, it's, I, he, you know, everyone knows he did it. He, and he like isn't trying to hide that fact. Yeah. It, you know, he's he's coming up with this ridiculous uh, claim. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's. Uh, it's something else. Yeah. It's sort of what dictators do, right? Part of it is like in democracies, you have to hide all the bad things you do. So like you do covert interventions, you try to, you know, smuggle things so nobody knows about it. But in a in a true sort of authoritarian system, you have to let your brutality be seen and sort of right. laugh, not laugh at it, but acknowledge it because it it just creates more fear. Like he's not afraid of being called out on it. It's kind of part of the messaging. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, and you see that as he's been in power longer, right? The, the more, the, the further he gets away from any sort of real democracy, the yeah. more important it is, or the less important it is to hide it. And the more important it is to have it, have it just out in the open. But that's right. Yeah. Well, in other, again, before we dive into the real news, like your Astros are, you know, baseball playoffs are going on and, and they're yeah. doing well. My brewers, they did not do real well. They, uh, they just tried, tried not to win and didn't do that. Um, but your Astros are, <laughs> you set up two to one, right? 
up to one. Yeah, they're playing again tonight, and and I'm gonna watch it on my new, you know, fancy TV. It's so fantastic. And and again, I will come back. You know, I know that people. Well, we probably have a, lot, a fair number of Astros fans who listen because we sure. I have ties to Texas, but. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I know that that they're like the most hated team in baseball, but they're they're my team. I love there, them. <laughs> there is a, the, you know, the PBS Frontline. I don't know if you know, Frontline came out with an episode on the Astros and oh, the really? cheating. It's really, it's. I watched it this last week. It's really oh. well done. You know, they get, they get into the whole uh, garbage can bang bang. You know, where they yeah. were calling out and they talk about. They get the guy who uh, was videotaping it, and apparently they had a TV down in the locker room where there was another guy that signaled the gar- garbage can banger guy. So it was, it's really interesting, and they kind of talk about the the evolution of the Astros, how they got good, and then how this fit in yeah. with that part of that process. So it's it's well done. I need to watch that. That's, I still don't. I mean, I I know the basics of what of, of what they were doing, but like the 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 speed with which you'd have to be able to do it is still pretty remarkable. Like they, they deserve <laughs> right. some uh, some praise for their for right. their, so it's super for sophisticated their creativity. Yeah, right. To to be able to, to for the listeners who don't know, like they were they were stealing signs, uh, and so they had a camera in the outfield. The Astros were doing this, and then they would signal to the uh, to the dugout somehow, or I guess the dugout had the had the TV to do this, and then they would signal to some guy who. Would beat a garbage can if it was going to be a curveball, which it was super sophisticated. And then the dumbest technique for letting people know, let's just beat on a garbage can. <laughs> so, so, oh, but yes. All right. Well, good luck to your Astros. Before we, we start, we remind everybody how they can stay connected with us because we got some good articles this week. Yeah, I got quite a few of them, actually. So you can you can find uh, find us at the politics and as usual, um, you click on this week's episode, and, and I, I think I've got seven or eight articles this yeah. week. So several of them, uh, sort of just interesting pieces that we've we've seen about the the Israeli the Israel Hamas situation. Um, but uh, also a number we're going to talk about uh, whether the world is multipolar or, or bipolar, and and why that matters. It's academic talk, but there's some some really interesting yeah. uh, articles uh, around that debate, which has been an ongoing debate in in the field um, recently. So all of that's available at the Politics Lab com as well as all of our social media links and our email and, and all of that. That's fantastic. All right, let's let's we got to start with Israel and Hamasville. It is yeah. the biggest story. It's dominating the news everywhere. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as our listeners are, are no doubt aware, I think everyone is aware at this point, Hamas, the political and military organization in power in the Gaza Strip, launched an extensive and brutal, violent, uh, appalling attack into Israeli territory this weekend. Um, Hamas launched over 3000 missiles into Israeli territory and used forces on the ground to target civilians specifically, as well as um, the military. Uh, as of this afternoon, last I looked, the death toll is at least 1200 in Israel. Um, it's over a little over a thousand in, in Gaza and, and several hundred of those fatalities are children. Um, in addition, Hamas took at least 150 people hostage and is threatening to kill one every time Israel strikes a civilian target in Gaza. Uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is, is often beset by violence, but this attack was of a scale not seen in many decades. Um, Bill, there is just there's so much to this violence that we can talk about. And, and, you know, obviously, this has led to a tremendous amount of pain for many people, both in the region and around the world. And, and we don't want to minimize any of that. But our goal on this podcast has from the beginning, it's been to try to help people make sense of the political world around us. And, and there's just a lot 
at play in the events of the past few days that that we can sort of talk about through a political science lens. So, you know, we're going to be kind of sort of abstract and theoretical about some of this. Uh, just so for instance, um on a domestic level, the attack comes at a time of division in Israeli politics and and the fact that the attack seemed to catch Israel by surprise has led to a great deal of criticism of the Israeli government from within Israel, uh, a government that was already uh, you know, somewhat unpopular because of domestic reforms they had been putting in place. Uh, today, Israel announced a unity government in preparation for what will certainly be a violent and harsh crackdown um, on Hamas, uh, you know, uh, by by Israel. I mean, they've been very clear um, in their language about about what's coming next. Internationally, the attack has brought near universal near universal condemnation. Not everyone. We can come back to that later. But um, but the but it, this attack also touches on issues of terrorism, international law, religious violence, regional geopolitics. You know, Iran's support for Hamas and recent attempts by the U.S. to normalize relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel come into play here. They illustrate the risk that this conflict could spill into a broader war. Um, Ann Applebaum wrote an intriguing piece for The Atlantic in the aftermath of, of the attack that argued that this attack, along with Russian attacks in Ukraine, signals that the international order is in tatters. And her quote was, open brutality has again become celebrated in international conflicts, and a long time may pass before anything else replaces it. It's it's a, a dark take on sort of where we are. Yeah. Um, there's just so much to wrestle with here, Bill. I, I don't even know where to begin. Um, so I'm going to let you, <laughs> you get sure. that, that honor. So, I mean, what have you been thinking about? What have you been feeling as you've watched events unfold this week? Where, where do you want to start? Yeah, well, there's, as you noted, I think there's, there's the emotional side and we're not going to really dive too much into that because it's, it's sort of not what we do in this podcast, but it has been, it's really heartbreaking to watch the violence play out. In Israel and, and you know, the way in which uh, Hamas just used just awful, awful barbaric violence and and also not us to see the Gazans, uh, c- civilians also being uh, caught up in all of this. And it's 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 always the case where it's the it's the innocent civilians who get caught up in this. And I think that's inevitably where we're going to be heading. But but a question I've been grappling with is this sort of the why question. Right. So, uh, you know, why did this happen? And I think it comes from two different directions, you know, thinking about, you know, why did Israel let this happen? I think there are many important questions that have to be answered, but maybe the most important question is how this happened to Israel, right? I mean, they they are, uh, you know, one of the leading countries in terms of intelligence networks. They know what's going on. You know, they've built these, these impressive border walls uh, along the Gaza border there to keep people out. They monitor them. Uh, you know, Israel controls the internet and the phone lines. They know everything that's going on. So how and why does this happen? I think that's a really, really important question. You know, how did this occur? And I think, as you suggested in the intro, uh, there are many thinking that maybe Israel was distracted by domestic politics. You know, people are talking about populism, that uh, Netanyahu, the prime minister, uh, is, is, is a wonderful populist candidate. He's good at staying in power, uh, but he may not be as good at his job as he is at staying in power, right? And, uh, and, and you know, saying that there are simple problems or complex problems, but he's got simple solutions. So I think I'm, I'm sort of, I want to learn more about how this happened, why this happened. And I think on the flip side, you know, d- digging a little deeper into what were the motivating factors for Hamas? Because I keep coming back to 
it's it's hard to know what the strategic value of an attack like that is because Hamas knows that Israel is going to respond yeah. with a heavy heavy hand. It's going to be devastating, and it sort of leaves me in the position that they wanted this to happen. Uh, yeah. And so Hamas engaged in an attack that they knew was going to lead to a devastating, brutal response, and that's part of the plan, right? That they want violence to escalate. They want this to turn into an ugly, brutal, morally complicated situation where maybe Hezbollah in Lebanon drops down, maybe Iran gets pulled in, maybe the United States gets pulled in. I mean, this is sort of a nihilistic, burn-it-all-down type of goal, ultimately, you know, culminating in the end of Israel. I mean, it's 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 dark days when you think about all of that. So that, that's the questions that have been sort of I've been grappling with, the why and the hows and trying to figure out the strategic logic. Um, how, how about you? Well, I, so I, I mean, I, well, I, let me, let yeah, me respond sure. to some of the stuff you just said, and then, and then I'll talk about kind of what, where, what I've been uh, wrestling with. I, you know, I, I think you're, you're right. I mean, I, the analogy that a number of people have used that I, that has popped up that might be useful for Americans is, is September 11th, right? This yeah. is a, a similar type of attack. Not, not as many were killed, but in terms of like, uh, you know, proportion and size yeah. of the attack. Like this is, this is, you know, major significant. And, and I've seen other people point out that, um, you know, the United States, even after September 11th was never at risk of being, you know, attacked or invaded by its neighbors, by yes, Al Qaeda right. in the way that Israel is in this particular situation. So, you know, if, 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 if people are trying to wrap their head around just, you know, why this is so, uh, so significant or, or, you know, frightening, um, that, that maybe helps people, people do that. But that's, you know, that was the question after September 11th. 11th, right? How did this, how did this happen? How did this, you know, um, and, and it took a long time and lots of, you know, kind of, uh, you know, after the fact inquiries to sort of understand some of that. And I think that will be, you know, what you see, you see play out here, but yeah, I mean, part of it is, you know, Netanyahu, um, is, is a divisive person that his cabinet is, has not a particular, like not a particularly extensive military experience. So right. that, you know, some of what, some of the sort of Israeli governments in the past have had more connections to kind of this, you know, a history and in, in intelligence, in the military than, than you currently do. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it'll be, you know, I don't understand the nuances of, of a lot of the Israeli, you know, domestic uh, agenda, but you know, there, Netanyahu has been accused of, you know, he benefited from Hamas being in power in that, uh, it sort of took a two, a two state solution off the table temporarily. Yeah. And so, you know, there, this idea that maybe he kind of became too comfortable or, or let his guard down on it, but yeah, it'll be yeah. really fascinating to see. And the other question that you talk about is I really, a, a really fascinating one about what, what is the motivation of Hamas? And, you know, there, there is this, this very base level, which is, you know, people have been pointing out that like Israeli treatment of Palestinians and, and conditions in, in, in Gaza and whatnot are in, in some ways this, this concrete motivation. But if you think about it in this more, like we often talk about, like in terms of strategic logic, yeah. It, it is kind of hard to wrap your head around I, this idea that, you know, it, it is, it is, it does seem to be a likely, you know, any victory that they achieved is a, you know, a, a pyrrhic victory, right? They're yeah. going to, they're going to pay. Uh, I mean, this is going to bring down um, harsh and, and brutal responses by Israel. And so, yeah, the, the, the tendency is to think that was the intention. Although, 
I just finished teaching Graham Allison in yeah. my in my uh, international relations class who talks about like, you know, the assumptions you bring to a question sort of shape the conclusions you draw. And oftentimes we assume people intend the things that they, yeah. you know, that, that and, and, and Graham Allison says it's it, that's a dangerous assumption. You shouldn't assume that actions <laughs> right. are intentional, right? That oftentimes other things come into play, that people aren't always rational. That I, I saw one person arguing that, that Hamas might have miscalculated, that Hamas might have had more success than even they imagined they sure. were going to have. So, so there, you know, maybe it's that they, you know, this is, this was not necessarily intentional, but if you assume it was intentional, I, I mean, the attack obviously was intentional, but, uh, you know, um, if you assume that this is, you know, there, they were, there's a tendency to think they want this Israeli response and there have been, you know, that's a, that's a terror tactic. That's long been a terror tactic. Yeah. You, 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 um, <clears throat> bring about such a harsh reprisal that that actually brings people to your cause, right? You, yeah. you can sort of highlight the, the brutality of the, of the other side. And so that, that may very well be what, what they're intending, but yeah, it is hard to imagine how, whatever their goals are, that they are going to achieve them through this. Um, but, but we'll see, I, I you know, I think, uh, do you, did you want to respond to that before? No, well, I, no, just real quickly, you're right on the, the terrorist tactic is really important because it's, you know, we've talked I don't know if we've talked on the podcast about, you know, terrorists draw a distinction between the supporters and the sympathizers of terrorism. Right. And, and so oftentimes what terrorist organizations are trying to do is turn the sympathizers who, who identify with the cause of the group, but not with the tactics they deploy. And so when they engage in a terrorist attack, they're hoping that the other side responds and engages in again, a whole, you know, overly general kill civilians, all of that, because then it turns the sympathizers into supporters. So in a weird, weird sort of way, it could be that Hamas is seeing this as a long-term hearts and minds strategy, right? When Israel responds, that's how they can potentially pull people in. I don't know if it's going to be effective, but I, you're right that it is a common terrorist tactic. Yeah. The, the part that the thing that I, I mean, I watching the, like you were saying in the, in the intro, the, the just the the awful scenes in 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 Israel, but again, you know, also you know, as you're seeing them play out in in Gaza as well, because again, Hamas is not Gaza, right? These are yeah. they're they're two different they're two different things. Most people in in Gaza don't support Hamas, and and so, yeah. um, but but it's just the the just wrestling with the kind of moral complexity or intricacies of this. And, 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 and I don't, it's just something that I, uh, you know, I, I, I continue to wrestle with. I, this, yeah. It is one of those things where the, the actual, I, I just taught ethics and war last semester. And so I've kind of been thinking about that as well, but you know, the, the attacks themselves are morally repugnant. They, it shouldn't be difficult for anybody to condemn yeah. them. Um, but you get, and this is the problem in these kind of intractable conflicts, these conflicts that carry on for a really long time because of this back and forth we talk about, both sides feel sort of vindicated in yeah. their responses. They both, there's there's this human tendency of, you know, mirror imaging that they both see the other as as evil. And and I, I think it's, it's, it's this, this, I don't know, the kind of moral justifications that go into justifying immoral things, um, that, that is, is a very human, it's a very human enterprise, but it, it's troubling, especially if yeah. your goal is for this to not happen anymore. Right? right. And, and the more you go down this route of, of sort of the, you know, clinging to the moral, we're right. 
um, it, it, it makes it harder and harder to, to solve that. I, I don't know. I feel like I just said a whole bunch of nothing, but I think that's the thing that I yeah. wrestle with is trying to make sense of, I, I want this to be a simple situation. I think that's the human instinct, right? Yeah. And, and it's just, it's so complex and so complicated, um, to, to kind of make sense of it. It's, it's hard. And if we think about it, sort of build off that point, if we think about the the decades of violence that have played out, there isn't a military solution to this conflict. And I, I think certainly Israel would acknowledge that as well, right? That that now they are going to have a, a brutal military ca- campaign in Gaza, but that's not going to win them the peace, right? At some point, you know, I think their, their goal initially is going to be to eliminate Hamas, right? I think this is similar. You mentioned 9-11. This is about like destroying Al-Qaeda, destroying Hamas to say this is an illegitimate actor um, and we are going to, to remove them permanently. But that's going to be really, really difficult. Uh, and again, there's no military victory that's going to create peace. I mean, in 2005, Israel pulled out of the Gaza Strip because it was a quagmire, right? It, it was, you know, talk about Iraq or talk about Vietnam. You you could not win in that environment. And now they're once again going to be, going to be forced to go back there uh, for a military purpose. And then at some point hoping to to defeat and then translate into some long-term maybe political solution that involves maybe returning to a two-state solution, something like that. But but in the short term, we're going to see lots of devastating violence, but that is that is not going to be the long-term shoot solution for sure. Right. No. I, well, and I mean, that takes me, so to, to take it back to a broader yeah. kind of theoretical approach, you and I were talking before we started recording. I, it also, you know, political science talks about this, that this is, this is in some ways kind of a perfect example of the difficulties of, of international relations in that, it, you know, you can have actors who are both acting quote unquote rationally, right. And that, and that, you know, Hamas is targeting Israel because they feel that, you know, because Israel has, uh, you know, oppressed Palestinians or whatever, Israel is totally reasonable and, and, and rational to feel threatened by, uh, Hamas who continues to attack Israel. And so you can have both actors and in a, in a world, you know, this is a very realist argument in a world where there's no world government, there's no world police to come in and, and, you know, throw people in prison for doing the wrong thing everybody feels like they're on their own to defend themselves. And, and, and the, the outcome realists would say is that people focus on their security first and foremost. And so Israel is under, it is understandable why Israel would feel insecure in the place that they are. It is understandable why uh, Palestinians would feel insecure in the place that they are in. And the, the problem is this is that, you know, that spiral, right? Yeah. Israel tries to feel more secure, but anything they do to increase their security is, you know, yep. um, is threatening to the Palestinians. Anything Palestinians try to do to improve their security is threatening to the Israelis. And, and we end up in this terrible outcome where everybody's, you know, acting in their own self-interest and, and yep. whatnot. But but it leads to this just, again, this this terrible uh, end result that, that nobody really wants. You know, realism talks about that, you know, a prisoner's dilemma and the security dilemma that that in in an anarchic international system, you always have suboptimal outcomes. And I think that's a perfect yeah. way of thinking about this. We're, we're heading towards we've had suboptimal outcomes and that's what we're going to continue to head towards. Uh, and, and nobody is going to have the peace and stability that they really, really want. Uh, uh, and again, that's not good for Israel. It's not good for the Palestinians. It just means that you're going to you're going to have more and more chaos. Uh, and and again, so this likely gets a lot worse before it gets better. And so then you think about the United States, right? So the United States has sent an aircraft carrier group over there. I think Biden's number one goal is to try to limit 
this from spreading because anytime yeah. you have the kind of conflict that you're describing, <clears throat> it can spread to other actors. You know, you thinking about, you know, it's possible that people rise up in the West Bank or it's possible that uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon gets involved or Iran. All of these actors may see a similar strategic interest in, in responding. Um, and so, so Biden has got this really delicate line to walk where he wants to be supportive of Israel and say, we've got your back and we are, you know, with no conditions, right? You know, the United States usually supports Israel with, you know, saying, okay, here are some conditions, here's some restraints. His speech yesterday, that wasn't the case. But now, you know, he's got to try to contain all of this while still allowing Israel to do what it wants to do. And yeah, realism suggests this isn't going to end well either. So, so I mean, let's walk down that road. Yeah. How does this, in, in a realist worldview, how does this play out? Because it's not just Israel and Palestine who are concerned about their security and yeah. and and power and all of that. It, it is, you know, this incredibly complex region yeah. um, in which, you know, Israel has, you know, has arguably been itching for a long time to uh, uh, target or attack Iran, right? Because Iran has 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 uh, you know continued to support groups that uh, terrorist organizations that target Israel. Um, and I mean, is there a chance that is that Israel doesn't you know that this alone is enough to you know once the the I don't know what once the the initial steps in Gaza have played out that that Iran becomes the next target, and then if that's the case. Who does that bring in sure. on which side? Yeah. We get, come around to Saudi Arabia, who who has not been necessarily a, that's yeah. an understatement. To say they haven't been a friend of Israel, sure. but they had been working on normalizing relationships, and they they really dislike Iran. So then you get all these other complex, you know, right. Iran and Saudi Arabia trying to balance each other out, and I mean, this is where very quickly you you have a sort of pre World War One kind of spiral sure. of of group of people taking sides because of their own self interest as well and their own goals of, of power. I mean, is that is that how concerned are you about that happening? About this spiraling into a larger regional conflict? It is. I, I it is certainly a possibility. So I'm thinking about that. Right. I still think it's not likely, but it is certainly possible. And that's, I think your example of World War One is perfect because nobody really wanted World War, but they were pursuing their own strategic interests and you end up in that circumstance. And and absolutely, right? Now, I think we can maybe talk about this, domestic politics matters as well, right? So Israel's got domestic politics, international politics. Um, you know, your, your realism is, is such a perfect venue for this or, or a, uh, lens for this, but I also think constructivism is useful. Um, you know, Alexander Wendt wrote this book, Anarchy is What Stays make of it. The idea that, you know, we construct how we understand anarchy. And you brought up Saudi Arabia. So, you know, the United States and, and Israel and Saudi Arabia were getting awfully close on a big deal to recognize each other. If that would have happened, that's the biggest development in the Middle East in, in 50 years, right? If Israel mm -hmm. and Saudi Arabia established diplomatic relations, it is a major step towards peace. Close to that point. But because of this attack by Hamas, that goes away. It's on the back burner if it's not it totally gone. Is that possibly part of the motivation of Hamas doing this attack is to is to derail those that process? I, I, I think so. Right. And it's hard to know how big of a role, but it certainly has to be some some factor that was. Uh, so you, you had the situation where maybe you were getting closer to more diplomatic, political, inter, you know, governmental uh, deals, whatnot. And then Hamas, through this one act, is able to blow all of that up. And suddenly anarchy comes back to the state of nature, defending yourself. And so maybe that's a strategic win for Hamas because they saw all. Uh, Hamas and Iran, who saw these other developments occurring. I mean, it is it's so awful, but also fascinating to see how one one act can throw the world in an entirely different direction. And I think that's how we have to think about 
what happened this last weekend is this this is one of these paradigm changing events, especially for the region of the Middle East, where things will be different for a long time after this. So that you you had mentioned constructivism and the power of norms and all of yeah. that, like as an alternate to to realism. I mean, that kind of goes in line with this Ann Applebaum article that she had in in the Atlantic, where basically she's she's saying that yeah. the international order, which is a, a kind of a way of saying she's saying the international order is in tatters, but really it's a way of saying that the the norms that had been in place have have eroded to the point where they don't re. There's always norms, but the the old norms sort of don't really exist because her argument is you have have a state actor in Russia who's essentially, you know, just flat out targeting civilians. That that has become, it's not just in Ukraine, that has become sort of Russia's go-to way of fighting a war, right? It is state sponsored. It's not state sponsored. It is state carried out terrorism, right? Yeah. And then you have Hamas, which is sort of a, a semi-state um, actor, but certainly has the support of Iran and whatever, who's doing this as well. This just brazenly targeting civilians, taking hostages, using human shields all of this. And her argument is essentially this is becoming the norm and there, there isn't sort of enough pushback internationally to, yeah. to, to, uh, to, to keep that in line. I, that, that's, I, I don't know that I'm quite that far along, but I mean, is there something to what she's saying? Like, does this, does this make you concerned for like international standards of, of, you know, human rights and decency and what we think of, of what had somewhat emerged in the kind of post-World War II, post-Cold War era. It's a, it's an interesting argument. I'm not sure I fully buy it. I think it's in the moment. We tend to think that this is the only time this has happened, but, but you and I have studied international politics for a long time. And even though in the moment, when we look at what happened here, it's terrible. And the, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine is terrible. And I do think that's maybe a bit more norm-breaking, but we could go back to 94 and the genocide in Rwanda. We can go to Srebrenica, right? I think there's a long list. Every so often, you have one of these incidents that forces you to reflect. And so I think she's saying we're you know, we're moving into a new normative order. And I might push back and say, I think this happens more than we think. We don't maybe just kind of connect the dots because I think there's been, even though we're more aware of human rights than we were prior to World War II, I, I think there's a there's a long laundry list of incidents like this that I think are maybe less norm shattering than, than she thinks they are. What, what do you think? You, you love the norms. Yeah. I do love norms. I, you know, I, um, I, I was a little bit con- like, it, I think I'm, I'm a little, conv- I'm not convinced. I'm a little yeah. bit persuaded by her arguments, but I also think I, I, your point I, maybe brings me back a little bit. This idea of in the moment, it always feels because I, the other example is September 11th, where yeah, there was right. this expectation or this belief that like the Bush administration's argument was the world is different now. So we have to behave differently. And arguably the thing that changed the world was not so, I mean, it was September 11th, but really if we're talking about norms, what changed things was the American response to yeah, September 11th as much as it was point. September 11th. And so the, the, the jumping to the conclusion that the world is different now is part of what erodes those norms, right? If it's people just, I mean, the, yeah. the norms exist because people believe in them. And so, you know, that's where I, I think again, like the, I, there was an interesting piece I read today about the morality of the issue and it was talking about like the, the Hamas's tactics were morally repugnant, um, but th- th- we should also be prepared to judge Israel's response. Yeah. Like Israel should, you know, if, if targeting civilians, 
civilians and and you know children is is wrong. It's always wrong, yeah. and we should expect Israel to hold to those yep. um, those standards as well. And if Israel sort of blows those out of the water on their way to to you know punishing Hamas, then then they become part of the process of eroding those norms that that they were so concerned about to begin with. This is right, and this is what we saw in the United States after nine eleven, right in the. In the effort to win a righteous moral victory, the United States oftentimes lost the way and violated the very norms it was suggesting it was going to protect, right? And so I think this is a, a real concern that that Israel has to be grappling with, right? I mean, they're trying to go after the evildoers, but you cannot become an evildoer to, to finish them off. So I, I know we need to move on, but maybe like just like a couple minutes thinking about the U.S. domestic political dynamic here. Mm-hmm. And so the Republicans still don't have a speaker. Um, and do you think, you know, you're hearing all sorts of conversation among the Republicans like, oh, Biden is weak and he needs to do more. Do you think this connects at all? Do the Republicans get their act together because of this and they think we have to have a voice? I mean, does it play any role in the in the Republican Party and U.S. domestic politics? Does it motivate them to 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 be a little more reasonable and elect a speaker or do we still see dysfunction at the at the domestic level? That's a really good question. And I, this is me like thinking through this on the spot because I, yeah. I haven't put any thought into this. I mean, my initial thought is, no, this doesn't change anything because the 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 sort of eight rebels or whatever who brought yeah. down Kevin McCarthy aren't like their concern isn't like, boy, we should be governing. We, we need yeah. good policy coming out of this. And so it's hard for me to imagine that they are going to put, you know, their differences behind them in the name of, you know, <laughs> right. effective American responses to things. Now, the the other side of it is, I mean, maybe, you know, you see a unity government coming out about, and obviously the situation for Israel is worlds apart from the situation from the United States, but <sighs> these sorts of incidents and, and the, the sort of potential, you know, seismic shifts in, in global politics do have a way of, you know, maybe bringing people to their senses. So maybe there's, you know, maybe there's hope of, I don't know, I, I don't know, is there any hope that you get some sort of, uh, you know, moderate unity style thing that comes because it's not the eight extremists who recognize that things need to get done, but some of the moderate Republicans and Democrats who recognize that things need to get done? It's possible. It's possible it happens. I think it's unlikely. <laughs> but it's almost certainly not going to happen. I this think is, this is me dreaming again right, of a world right. where politics works. I would love to see that. I would love to see that, you know, where you actually have a coalition government trying to do the right thing. Um, but what I think might be more likely is Republicans are going to be frustrated because Joe Biden is looking like a leader. You know, he's supporting yeah. Israel. He's giving speeches, right? He's doing what leaders do when crisis hit, right? You know, the center of gravity always falls to the executive branch. And then you've got these rinky ding in Congress who can't even elect a speaker. So I imagine moderate Republicans are saying, like, we've got to get this done. You know, we can't let Biden steal all the attention. So I wonder whether that might be somewhat of a motivating factor, although I I, I don't know. I mean, maybe they go to Steve Scalise this week. I don't know. Right. I mean, the moderate Republicans aren't the problem, though, right? I mean, that's the that's the that's that's where you have to deal. I mean, it's it's where you have a party held hostage by the the sort of extreme parts of the of the you know of of Congress of the its most extreme members basically and this that, is, that that's yeah. where i have a hard time imagining that they are shaken in any way from their their views by something like this 
this is interesting. All right, well, we will return to this topic because I'm sure it's not going away anytime oh, soon. Yeah. So but we should yeah. move on. All right. So, Phil, I'm so excited about this next topic. It's super it's a super nerdy deep dive into the global division of power. Uh, in both of our international relations classes, Phil and I spent a lot of time talking about who has power in the international system and how many powers are there. For instance, is there just one dominant global power, which we would describe as a unipolar world, like the world after the Cold War where the United States was the one global hegemon? Or are there two global powers, which we define as a bipolar world? And again, the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union is a perfect example of that. And there still is a third model where there are multiple, you know, sometimes four, five, six powers um, that we would define as a multipolar world. Now, the reason I bring this up is because there's a rather fascinating debate occurring among scholars of international relations about whether the world that we live in is a bipolar or multipolar world. In other words, are there just two major powers, think United States and China, or are there in fact additional powers making the system multipolar in nature? The case for a multipolar world was recently made by Emma Ashford in the Journal of Foreign Policy. She writes, quote, a multipolar system doesn't require three powers of equal size. It just requires that significant power is concentrated in more than two states. Today, the middle powers from Japan to India are significantly more influential than they once were. This is a textbook definition of what scholars call unbalanced multipolarity, unquote. Oh, my goodness, Phil, this is just such good stuff. <laughs> um, so now other scholars like Dan Dresner, who we've referenced before, interpret the data differently and argue that by a variety of economic and military measures, measures of power, it's still the United States and China and then everybody else. Now, you may ask why any of this matters. Well, much of the reality that we all experience is determined by the number of powers, number of global powers. Uh, a bipolar world is very different from a multipolar world. Uh, there was another great piece this, uh, piece this week by journalist and economic blogger Noah Smith, who showed that the period of U.S. unipolarity, this era that is sort of coming to an end, saw a dramatic decrease in conflict and death around the world. So there, there are you know real ramifications for having one power versus two versus three. Phil, it's hard to capture just how excited I am talking about polarity. So what do you think about the question of whether we live in a bipolar or a multipolar world? Uh, well, so let's start with, let's talk a little bit about why it matters. Yeah, and then let's yeah. come back around to, because this is, you know, the, the Noah Smith article, he, this, he talks about the Pax Americana. This is something that, that political scientists have talked about, which is in that era, particularly from like the 1990s through kind of 2010 ish or yeah. whatever, the world became more peaceful. And, and his argument that he's making essentially is that the U S is such a dominant power that other countries, you know, before they invaded somewhere else had to think about what whether or not this would essentially draw an American response, right? Yeah. And and so um, when the U.S. can kind of do whatever they want, it it, it acts in some way. This is it's a really fascinating thing because in some yeah. ways it goes against kind of classic balance of the balance of power arguments and whatnot. But but whether the world is sort of bipolar or multipolar, really, you know, some of these articles get into the. I have both. I have all these articles: the the Dan Dresner article, um, the. Um, my mind just went blank. Emma Ashford. Uh, Emma, and, yeah. Emma Ashford, yes. The Emma Ashford article, the Dan Dresner article, and the Noah Smith article all on the webpage so people can go read them. But, um, you know, one of the things is that if the world is bipolar, if it's just the U.S. and China, then then essentially the you 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 put in place a sort of Cold War playbook where the U.S. is looking to contain 
China and the U.S. and its allies tries to essentially, um, you know, use their power, their force to stop, you know, Chinese spread or whatever. In, in a multipolar world, you can't really do that, right? The U.S., you can't count on allies in quite the same way. You have to, the argument is if the U.S. is not sort of one of the two dominant powers, but is in fact one of five or six or seven major powers, you have to sort of recognize that your power is to some extent minimized, that you have to be willing to work with other players and partners that, that rather than sort of taking the lead on pushing back against China, the U S has to see itself as like one of many, and it has to be sort of more diplomatic in how it goes about things. And, and the Biden administration, I mean, this is the, the, the Ashford argument essentially is that the Biden administration is taking a very cold war view, right? It is us versus China. And when it's us versus China, we can sort of dictate to NATO and everyone else what they need to do in order to sort of keep China in check. And she's saying there's a real risk in doing that if it's not truly a bipolar world, because, you know, we don't we wouldn't we don't if it's just if it's not a bipolar world, we don't have that sort of economic power to constrain China. We can say whatever we want, but if India and Brazil and all these other major powers are still willing to work with China, then the U.S. is like, you know, it's all bluster for for no real reason. So these things matter, right? The strategy the U.S. takes really depends on how how the world is structured. I, do you have more you before I sort of shift into like what I think about whether the world is bipolar? What, no, what, are, do, you, what do you want to add to that? No, I think that I think you're spot on in terms of the implications, right? Because it's it's not just an academic conversation. Now, we like the academic conversation about it, but it's really valuable to think about if the United, to your point, if the United States is, is operating in a multipolar world or what, what does she say? How does she say an unbalanced multipolar world and you're playing a bipolar game? Your your head's buttoned against the wall, right? Because you know there there are multiple different alliances. It's not going to be easy to get everybody in the same direction. So you would be better off engaging in bilateral agreements with with actors, right? Because you're more likely to get an agreement on one topic with one state instead of trying to get everybody into one coalition. So no, it has a major impact in how you engage. Okay, so keep going. So when I look at the world, I mean, this comes to the question then of, is it a, is it a, what, what's fascinating is that for a long time, the, we just talked in international relations as it was a unipolar world. The U S yeah. was dominant and, and it feels like it's gone very quickly from that conversation to like, is from, is China rising? Will China challenge yeah. the United States to we're not, it's not unipolar anymore. It, the question isn't whether China is challenging the United States. It's whether, is it just China or is it other people as well? And so, um, it's really kind of fascinating how quickly that, that conversation yes. has shifted, I think. But, um, I, you know, I think, uh, when I look at the world, I, I tend to side more with Dan Dresden. So, I, I mean, I, I think there's a really interesting argument for this whole unbalanced multipolarity. You do see countries, um, playing more significant sort of international roles than they have in the past. India is a great example, right? It's now the largest country in the world. Its economy is growing, but you know, BRICS, they've been, they, India oversaw, um, you know, was, was the, uh, the host of the, whatever, but it was a G20. Is that G20, what I, the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Recently, yeah. you know, BRICS has the, the, you know, Brazil, Russia, 
India, what is BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa? Is that what the BRICS yes, yep, yep, is? That yep, what BRICS yep. is? They've talked about expanding now, right? Yeah. So they're kind of forming their own block. And so those groups, you know, have abilities to like really alter international relations in ways that wasn't necess- wasn't really the case during the Cold War. And so the idea that the world is sort of more multipolar than it was, yeah. you know, 50 years ago is convincing <laughs> to me. I don't know that it's multipolar enough to say that it sure. is truly multipolar. And this is where Dan Dresner, I think, you know, he comes along and basically says, really, I mean, when you look at actual measures, the U.S. and China are head and shoulders above others in terms of military might, economic might. And I tend to think that's true, especially in some like the Noah Smith article even argue, is arguing for a multipolar world. But he has a graph where he when you lump the U.S. and like the EU together, yeah. it and China are sort of like side by side in, in this way that, you know, if you if you lump China and Russia together um, in, in a way that I think we still basically have two blocks. Yeah. The question is, like, how much has American leadership eroded um, and and, you know, it, how much faith can we have that sort of NATO allies are sort of going to be unified? I think the Russia-Ukraine war has actually strengthened that like, you know, bipolar world world order to some extent. Um, The other part of it is I think you can say the world is still bipolar, you know, but it is not as dominated by those two states as it was in in um, in the Cold War, and that that's something the U.S. should take into account, right? It is yeah. it is still largely a U.S. and Chinese world, but other players have more power than they used to. And the U.S. Um, if they don't, if the U.S. does not take that into account, they're asking. I mean, to say they're asking yeah. for trouble, it sounds silly, but like it it would be it would be um, a major error to assume that you can take other countries for granted. I mean, the the call would be that the U.S. still needs to be more sort of cooperative. This is where American leadership is more important than it sort of ever was. What do you think? Yeah, no, I I find that really, really compelling. And and I... I, I am glad Emma Ashford is pushing on this. Actually, her and a couple of colleagues have written an, an academic article as well, because I think they point something out. I, like you, I still think it's primarily a bipolar world, but it is a different bipolar world than during the Cold War. And and uh, she or somebody, I can't remember where I got this, but cite some data and they talk about during the Cold War, um, the United States and the Soviet Union controlled 40 percent of the, the world's economic and military power. China and the United States only control 30% today, right? So it's a smaller percentage of economic and military power. And then she looks at the alliance structure. So the share of the the global economy controlled by Washington and Moscow and their alliances during the Cold War was 88%. So that was truly bipolar. Now, if you look at the alliance structures of the United States and China, it's only 57% of the global economy, Mm. which is... It says that it's a it is a bipolar world, but there are also significant other actors that make play a significant role, right? And and so the, I wouldn't say it's unbalanced multipolarity because I think that gives a little bit too much power to those other middling powers. But certainly it is not a pure bipolarity where everybody is getting in line behind the the two hegemons. So and I think that matters for all the reasons you suggested. It means that the United States shouldn't just pull out the same playbook from the Cold War, um, and they they should think differently about building alliances and building alliances even with countries that are at times aligned with China. 
So, yeah. you know, South Korea may trade with with China. That's OK. That doesn't mean that we can't have a relationship with China. It's a sort of it's a it's a different type of bipolarity. And a strategic actor is going to look to exploit as many relationships as possible. So, I mean, I think the data is really compelling and I think it tells the same story. It's just how the different scholars read that story. Yeah, I, I, as I, you know, as we were, as we sit here talking about this, I think about, it makes me wonder if the coal, if, if it's not that, uh, if, if there's a danger, I mean, this is, you know, when you study U.S. foreign policy, we've talked about on here before the power of analogies and the danger of analogies, yeah. right? They, they, they teach you lessons and, 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 you know, provide, you know, prescriptions for how you can deal with the, with the world. But analogies are problematic because they're not perfect. And so yeah. I, it feels like we are drawing from the lessons of the Cold War and, and looking at the, you know, how we deal with China. Um, and I think, you know, it, maybe the, the issue isn't that, that the, the Cold War is the sort of, um, I don't know, the, the ultimate, you know, definition or example of a bipolar world, maybe it's a bit of an outlier, right? Yeah, because when you look yeah. at the Cold War, we had uh, this sort of clear ideological line where you could look around the world and you had communist versus non-communist countries. And so who fell on which block, you know, which side was sort of clear, the stakes were sort of clear. The, the battle between the U.S. and China, the struggle between the U.S. and China is is more nuanced than that. I mean, it is about human rights, but they're, they're sort of both using the same language about, you know, they're both sort of engaging in, in trade, but they have different notions of trade. They have different notions of sovereignty. They have different notions of human rights. So they're sort of using the same language, but in, in sort of these slightly different ways that make the lines less clear. And so I, I think, you know, maybe this is still what a bipolar world looks like. And in a bipolar world, it's usually just it's not as simple as it was during the Cold War, where the lines were so clear. And if that's the case, then we we make mistakes not by acting as if it's a bipolar world, but by acting as if this bipolar world is the same as the second half of the 20th century bipolar world. And so this may be a bipolar world, but one in which we have to be more, you know, uh, I don't know, more uh, uh, adaptable, more, yeah. like you said, willing to, you know, we it's, things are just not as black and white and the rest of the world's not going to see them as black and as so black and white. And so we can't use that same, the same sorts of approaches that we did in a sort of anti-communist worldview. Well, I think that's really that's a really important point because the Cold War was easy that way because there was an ideological divide. It was capitalism versus communism. That doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Even though China claims to be communist, they've embraced the market, right? So right. everybody is embracing the market, globalization. It is, a, it is a united marketplace. And so that isn't going to be this nice little cleavage where there's one group on one side and the other on the other. So, I, yeah, I think you're right. Bipolarity may be very different uh, than it was during the Cold War. And again, the, the distribution of power Power is different as well. So you've got these actors playing in a different system, which is, hey, that's norms, right? As history plays out, you have different systems, different normative orders, and it's never going to fit perfectly into sort of the theoretical box. It's, this is, I mean, this is like a living test of, you know, so many theories of international relations kind of were for, or modern theories of international relations were formed in the Cold War. And so I have all these arguments about, you know, what's most stable, what's the default, yeah. you know, what, you know, what, what's the uh, um, equilibrium, right? Does the world naturally return to a bipolar state? And so much of that was based on the Cold War and then kind of trying to reassess it in the years after. This is, you know, as the world continues to shift, it, it will maybe provide us with 
just some new answers about, you know, how the world functions. It'll be fascinating as an international relations scholar to watch some of this play out and see how different countries behave it. But I do think, again, the the, the risk is the United States uh, approaching the 21st century like we're still in the 20th century. Well, the president is from the 20th century, right? Those are <laughs> those true. are important yeah. things. Yeah. Actually, all of our <laughs> leaders are. So, all right. We should move on. And for our final topic, we're going to take a deep and serious debate. I have a serious debate about arguably two of the most pressing issues facing the country. No, actually the world right now. And we're going to use all of our <laughs> analytical and empirical skills to try to determine which is the more worrying or troubling development. So the first situation involves one of Joe Biden's dogs, a German shepherd named Commander. Commander has been removed from the White House after a string of biting incidents. The la- last week, Commander bit another person, bringing his total to 11 such incidents uh, in the past year. In at least one incident, a Secret Service agent was taken to the hospital because of Commander's bite. And it's important to say that Commander's removal from the White House comes after Biden's two other dogs, Champ and Major, were reported to have bitten Secret Service staff in 2021. Um, Phil, I know you would love a, a trip to the White House, but I bet you're a little worried if Joe Biden's still there that you might get bit by a dog. <laughs> I mean, this is really, I mean, just first off, this is really remarkable. 11 <laughs> yes. times in the last year for one of his dogs and then to have other dogs who are also biting people like this is the, like I, in any other circumstance, right? Like if you had a dog that had bitten 11 people, yes. like it, this would have been taken out of your hands a long time ago, right? <laughs> like, right. I, and it, because you're the president, you're like, oh, Mr. President, like, you know, it's no big deal. Your dog bit me again. But no, in the real world, if you've got somebody whose dog has bitten somebody 11 times, that's that's bad news, right? Something Something's going on there. Why why do you think this is happening? I don't know. <laughs> maybe maybe Joe Biden's a bad dog owner. I I don't know what's going on. Maybe the stress of the White House. I've never heard of a of a White House dog biting somebody, right? This is just not That's something true. much less oh. 11 times and multiple dogs. I mean, we got to get to the bottom of this. But let's talk about Wasn't situation it, was 2. It, it was LBJ who used to pick his dogs up by the ears, right? Or was that Nixon? I think that was LBJ and he claimed he liked they yeah. liked it, which I don't know. Yeah. I don't think maybe that's the problem. Maybe uh, Biden needs to pick his dogs up by the ears. (laughs) Right. He's got to get tough with his dog. So, all right, let's debate situation number two. So, which takes us to Paris, where bedbugs have taken over the city. Uh, Paris is known for its style, its cuisine and culture, and it's now fending off an invasion of bedbugs. Videos of the insects crawling over metro seats in hotels and swarming buses and movie theaters have swept the Internet. Uh, And that bedbug anxiety in Paris is at a whole new level. With the Olympics only a year away, people are afraid that the trip to watch the Olympics could translate into a severe case of bedbugs. Phil, time to get out the old political science tools and decide which of these developments has us more worried. Let's start with the bedbugs again. How, how, you know, you're, I figured you'd be going to the Olympics. Are you okay with getting (laughs) bedbugs? Yes. I was I was a an elite calculator competitor in high school. Yes. I don't think they've made that an Olympic sport yet. But. <laughs> no, <laughs> bedbugs. Uh, bedbugs kind of terrify me. I, I ha- have you ever had a run in with bedbugs? Have no, you no. With it? Oh, I'm knocking on wood now too. No, yeah. Once when I was very when I was young uh, and poor, um, uh, as opposed to now where I'm old and poor. <laughs> Uh, Kelly, Kelly and I, my wife and I traveled through Europe and we took a, a sleeper train from uh, somewhere in Spain to Portugal or whatever and slept on the sleeper train and woke up in the morning with like bites and 
it was oh. it was not not good. But uh, no, bedbugs kind of terrify me. They, they seem like yes. they're impossible to get rid of. They're kind of everywhere. The like the 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 article that that you had sent me said that like the estimate was like twenty percent of, of like beds in Paris <laughs> yes. had bedbugs at this point. Like that. That's, it's astonishing. That's terrifying. Well, yeah. what's, so there's a couple of really fun angles to all of this. Fun and terrifying. But um, the the other major cities in Europe are now freaking out because everybody you know travels from Paris mm. to these other European cities. And so London, there have been a number of pieces written about London doesn't want anybody from Paris coming because they're going to bring, bring bedbugs. Which, as you said, trains are notorious, right? I mean, that's the thing where you people, European trains in particular. Um, but yes, I mean, this is... I have to think Paris is freaking out about this. One, just because it's bad, right? You just don't want bed bugs. But two, the world is coming to Paris for the Olympics. And how embarrassing is it if you're going to have athletes showing up with, you know, bed bug bites? If this is a real issue, the Olympic Village may get it. I mean, this is if you're France, this is a big, big priority. For sure. Yeah. You, this is not like, you don't, you don't want to have like the, the, all these people from around the world leaving with that being their impression of Paris. That would be uh yeah, there's, there's other reasons to be frustrated with Paris besides right. the bed. Right, so, okay. So who should be more worried? Should, should Paris be more worried or should Joe Biden be more worried about the fact that his dogs mm. are biting everybody? See, this is, a, this is an interesting question because I, yeah. this is where like, there's so many different ways to weigh this and that a dog bite is much more severe than a bed bug bite, right? Like yes. if, if I had to be bitten by a dog or a single bed bug, I would take the bed bug, right? That's yeah. better than, than the dog. But it, we're talking about one dog versus yeah. like however many billions of bed bugs. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes. And I think there is a tendency, you know, we talk about the human tendency to like, we overestimate, like, I don't know, like the fear of like dying in a plane crash or whatever, right? We, we tend to, one of the things we do is we, uh, overestimate the odds of something really awful happening to us yeah, when we yeah. all, and when we underestimate, uh, you know, other risks that are actually probably greater, um, but are sort of less scary. And so I, I think, you know, the tendency is to think dog bites are bad, but I, I think that the actual real threat that is like far more, like far more disturbing, like my life, I, commander Biden's not going to bite me, but some person <laughs> might go to the Olympics and bring bed bugs back and, and I would get them in my house. That that's, that's far worse. Right. So, okay. So you're saying bed bugs. Cause I think if given the option, okay, you, you're going to get bit by a German shepherd or bed bugs. I think I take the, I mean, as bad as bed bugs are, well, are they in my house? Cause that's a different factor. If I go See? to some hotel and I got bed bugs, I can burn all my clothes. Right. You know, and not <laughs> you're bring bringing them, them back with you though. And then you, no, you've no. got them in your house. Yeah. yeah. No, if you, if the, you, I, I know you, Bill. I know that you've brought you've brought pests into your house before through, through the, the, the doing things like this. Yes, no, that would be if it, if you know pests, uh, bed bugs in your house is probably worse than a dog bite. But just getting a few bed bugs biting you, I think, is you know like at the hotel or something. Again, if that happens to me at a hotel, I'm burning my clothes, I'm shaving my head, and uh, you know that's probably less worse than a dog bite because dog bites can be severe. See, this is, this is, this is fascinating, Bill. This is like, this gets like your, we get to like the heart of like a utilitarian argument here, yes. which is, which is yes, a dog bite is worse, but if it's one dog is one dog biting 11 people worse than bed bugs, like infesting yeah. millions of people in Paris. And so do, does a small yes. amount of pain distributed to lots of people outweigh a f higher amount of pain distributed to a smaller group of people? 
This is a this is a really deep question, right? And then we also got to factor in psychological the psychological effect of all this because the, these poor Parisians are probably freaking out about all this. Uh, yeah, no, at a macro level, uh, the amount of damage being done in Paris is greater than what Commander is <laughs> doing. But you know, I still think at the, at the micro level, Joe Biden's got to get his dogs under control. Something's that's not right. Eleven times, multiple dogs. You know, he, they they got to figure out why why that's happening. But no, like at a a meta level, you know, Paris getting bed bugs is a big deal. And, and then you're right, because you go back to an individual. So I, I'm weighing like the pain caused by, you know, billions of bed bugs versus one dog. But you come back around to it and you stand two people in front of me and you say, this is this is person number one and their dog yeah. has bit a dozen people. And this is person number two. And they brought some bed bugs back from Paris. <laughs> person one's the worst person, right? right like that, right. that's their they 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 get judged more harshly. This is true. Uh, yes, absolutely. There was one time, this is probably going back five, 10 years ago, where I w- my daughter and I were walking. We walked past this bush and suddenly a whole bunch of fleas jumped on us. Anyway, I was terrified, <laughs> Phil. I literally like we took all the clothes off, put it in a bag. Then I took the car right to the car wash and it was like vacuuming the whole thing out. You know, it, the, the, psychologically, little bugs, fleas, bed bugs, whatever it is, they that's just a terrorizing effect. So. This doesn't add up to me, Bill. Like the idea of like, this sounds like a coordinated flea attack on you. I don't think they work that way. They were like waiting in the bush to ambush you when you came by. I got I got really hairy legs. Like they thought I was a dog or something. You know? <laughs> oh, on that note, we should probably wrap up. You want to remind everybody how to stay connected with us, Phil? Yeah, so you can go to thepoliticslab.com and you can find uh, on this week's uh, episode page, I've got uh, two or three articles from the, that Ann Applebaum piece, uh, another, a, a couple of interesting pieces from The Atlantic on the Israel-Hamas uh, situation. And then all three of those pieces on, on bipolar, I, again, I don't know how, you know, this is the sort of thing that Bill and I get excited about. I don't know if other people are intrigued by reading about bipolarity or not, but um, those three pieces that we talked about are all there as well. And then also a piece, I think, from the Washington Post on on the bedbug problem in Paris. So if you want to learn a little bit more about that, that's there as well. So all of those at thepoliticslab.com. That is fantastic. All right, Phil, I will see you next week. Bye, Bill. Bye, Phil. 